My name is Linda Klumpers and I am a clinical pharmacologist. I have a PhD in clinical pharmacology of cannabinoids and I've been studying cannabinoids since 2006. You're listening to the Curious About Cannabis podcast. Hey everybody, this is Jason Wilson with the Curious About Cannabis podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in once again. So today I'm really, really excited to talk to Dr. Linda Klumpers, a clinical pharmacologist that's been studying cannabinoids and cannabis for quite a while. And then we also have a shared interest in education as well. Um, so this will be, a, I think, a great conversation. Thanks so much, Linda, for being willing to take the time to come on the podcast today. Thank you for having me, Jason. It's really great to talk to you, too. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. So um, for those that may not be uh, so familiar with your work, I mean, one thing I'll point out is that you are the brain behind Canify, um, which is an online um, quiz and also kind of a data gathering tool to help point people into uh, the direction of uh, research around certain things related to cannabis and cannabinoids to try to help steer people away from all of the hype and sort of hearsay, uh, which I, I like a lot. But um, beyond that, do you mind just describing a little bit about your background and kind of what got you into studying pharmacology and then specifically what got you into cannabis? Oh, sure. So uh, I've always been yeah very interested in so many things. And um, one of those things is the brain. And um, that's why I studied neuroscience. And sometimes you make decisions in life um, based on the things you like. Uh, mm -hmm. And sometimes you choose things based on the things you don't like. And one of the things that I uh, did not like about studying neuroscience, um, and it's really a personal thing, uh, I'm not trying to judge, but I had a very, very hard time working with animals. Mm -hmm. um, the mice and the rats were, were so cute. And I yeah. just had a, yeah, a, a big problem with um, working with them. I mean, playing with them was all fine. Uh, not with mice because they bite you. Uh, <laughs> but rats will crawl into your sleeve and stuff. Uh, so, so I found it so hard to, to work with them that I thought I, I want to do something else that is still neuroscience related. And that is actually how I got into pharmacology. Because if you study drugs in humans... Uh, the humans actually give consent to study <laughs> right. them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yes, you don't need to decapitate them after they're done. So uh, that was a more friendly way of um, still being able to study what happens in those brain of our, brains of ours uh, while um, yeah, uh, leaving the animals alone. So um, that it's always a combination of things, and this is just one of the um, of the uh, yeah the topics that was really um, important to me. Uh, not working with animals and yeah, science, pharmacology, biology, medicine. It's all so interesting, and with pharmacology and humans, this all comes together. And yeah, exactly. Yeah, and then now uh, regarding um, cannabis in particular, um, I must honestly say there are a lot of people in uh, in cannabis that really do this because of their passion for mm -hmm. the plant, their passion for cannabis. And I'm very interested in plants. Uh, I'm very interested in the pharmacology of cannabis. But there there is a lot of um, interesting plants out there, a lot of interesting compounds. Um, cannabis is one of them. 
there are a lot of interesting physiological systems in the body. The endocannabinoid system is one of them. Yep. And how I, yeah, how I got to work with um, uh, cannabis actually was because um, in the mid noughties uh, pharmaceutical companies were racing against each other to get the first cannabinoid compound on the market, which was actually not um, a uh, agonist like uh, THC, for example, because that has been in the market since uh, the 1980s. Um, but this was an antagonist. So a compound that binds to the same places as THC does, for example, THC is the compound in cannabis that makes you feel high, uh, but then it does the opposite effect. And the whole idea behind those compound classes wa uh, was to um, uh, uh, fight obesity, uh, to treat mm. uh, addiction. And, and those were the compounds that I started working with. And if you want to test these compounds in healthy volunteers, you will not measure anything. You will only measure something if you first activate the system and then try to block the system. If you just want to give one single dose and see what happens. So we activated the system with giving THC. And that is um, one of the ways I got involved in cannabis research, giving THC inhalations, later trying to study um, what THC does on your brain, how you can measure that with fMRI, um, studying various administration methods uh, with, with cannabis. So inhalation via vaporization, um, sublingual, uh, oral, that is how I got into cannabis research. Yeah, that's so exciting. Pharmacology is such an exciting field because it's like this uh, giant puzzle to work out all of these interconnected systems that are working together to produce effects in the body. Um, it's something that has always interested me in, in on different levels. And have you always had a passion for that kind of thing of trying to understand what's going on in the body? And I know you said you started out with neuroscience, so trying to understand what's going on with the brain, but is that kind of where that comes from? Like, even as a little kid, were you kind of interested in trying to understand? And <laughs> Yeah, oh, yes. Oh, definitely. I, I love this question because, <laughs> yeah, the, it, it is just amazing to me. I see the brain as part of the body. Yeah? So if something happens in the body that changes, um, you can often find it in the brain. Um, a very ex uh, yeah, um, good example is, for example, uh, a, menstrua a menstrual cycle. Mm -hmm. Um, in the in the, um, uh, the 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 period before menstruation, people feel different. Why is that? Uh, now there's this whole discussion about the um, the gut brain axis, eh? the right. microbiome. Yeah, exactly. Um, so that your intestines have influence on your brain as well. So that's all interconnected. Um, behavior is very example, uh, very uh, important and interesting to me. Uh, at high school, I was always fascinated. Um, by peer pressure, people would ask me if I wanted to do something because everyone did it and I didn't do it. And they were just surprised, but everyone does it. Yeah, but I don't want to. Why, why, why would I have to do that? Why, why would I also smoke or why would I also use uh, mascara or cut my hair? And, <clears throat> and, 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 um, uh, and the children from my class would not always listen to me, but if someone from a higher class would say mm -hmm. it, oh yeah. And, and I was fascinated by why? Why do you care? Uh, what, uh, why do people, are, are they so influenced by, by peer pressure, by group pressure? And uh, I think that a lot of that yeah, has to do with uh, the brains as well. And um, drugs can influence your behavior. 
uh, a lot. Uh, people right. use alcohol to socialize because it takes away their uh, their threshold. Um, I do not drink alcohol personally, uh, and I've never really had a fear of talking to strangers. Um, but I recognize it is very, very important in society. And um, therefore, brains, behavior, drugs, bodies, um, it's always fascinated me. Yeah, yeah. That's uh, that's really cool. It's I, very similar to me as well. I've always, at a, since a very early age, just wanted to understand why things were the way they were or why people behave the way they were. And uh, for a while, when I was um, in my undergraduate work, I actually thought I wanted to go into neuroscience. I was studying psychology and um, trying to kind of figure out my path. Um, and it went in a different direction, but that's something I've always been fascinated in is neuroscience and um, what's driving human behavior. And I don't know how all of this works. And how did... Um, your research when you were doing all of this work studying cannabinoids how they affect the body and everything how did that lead into canify ah um well that actually um yeah came 10 years later after i started with cannabis research <clears throat> it's uh, actually not like a boom canify was there but it's mm -hmm. really a gradual process um that that led me to starting Canify. Um, at some point, I uh, moved from my home country, the Netherlands, where I did my PhD in cannabis research, uh, to the United States, Colorado. And in Colorado, uh, I saw that, um, yeah, uh, a lot of people were very interested in, in this plant. Um, uh, the concentrations uh, of THC, uh, so mm -hmm. really the potency of the plants, <clears throat> yeah, it, it, it rose and rose and got higher and higher. And people had questions uh, about cannabis. Uh, they would try to turn to uh, the internet to find their answers. Yeah. yeah, and that's where the problem started. I once um, uh, used uh, Google. I, myself, I'd never used Google. I use a different search engine. Uh, but I tried to find all kinds of common cannabis terms on Google. And... There I found that around 80% of uh, the information um, that I searched was uh, either very untrue or very unhelpful to people. And I thought something needs to change. Um, the industry tries to educate, but um, <clears throat> there, there could be a potential bias. Mm -hmm. um, and at the time I started Canified, um, the government was still spreading wrong information about some things. So I thought there needs to be an objective source here uh, that tries to help people um, uh, yeah, um, by presenting them what science knows and then people hopefully can uh, try to make a, a better decision on yeah. what they do. Yeah. yeah, and that's that's a great approach. And what were some of the examples that you were noticing? Like, for instance, you said the government was circulating some misinformation um, about cannabis. What were some of the common things you were running into? Okay, um, so to to make it very blunt, um, <laughs> there there have always uh, <clears throat> excuse me, um, there have always been two camps really. Like. Uh, mm -hmm. Uh, and, and I saw this already when going to the International Cannabinoid Research Society meetings. Um, this year, they will celebrate their 30th uh, anniversary. Um, oh, that's wild. 
That's <laughs> great. <laughs> so on one hand, you have these uh, people who are very anti-cannabis. It's very mm -hmm. dangerous to use. On the other hand, you have people and they say it actually cures everything. Right. And then, yeah, there is this handful of scientists walking in between, like we just find this fascinating and we don't want to make it political. Um, and uh, uh, what you saw, what the, the government was spreading information about um, cannabis, um, yeah, causing psychosis and schizophrenia. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And on the other hand, you have uh, industry that tries to say it actually even goes as far. I've, I've heard this in podcasts that it cures cancer. Right. And I yeah, think both of those things are very dangerous to say. Um, especially the latter, actually, because you are talking to people who are desperate. They, they, they are desperate, they are anxious, and giving them false hope is very mean, I think. You should always be very realistic of what you know, what you don't know. Is there a chance you can say that, but you can never say that this is a cure? Right, yeah, no, that's, that's something that came out in my... Um interview with uh, Jason Miller, who's a, um, a traditional Chinese medicine expert, but he commented on some of the uh, patients that he's worked with have turned to cannabis for cancer. And he shared his perspective, which was, you know, one, there is no cure for cancer. Like that's a blanket statement that just doesn't really make sense when you, you know, study the complexities of cancer. But also he's just seen a lot of people die, you know, that, that tried it and went down that road and you know and it didn't help and you know and that's was his experience and he was echoing the same thing so it's it's good to to hear you say that as as well i think it's something that is not a very popular message in the cannabis industry um but it's something that we need to i think um have a very mature conversation about um so that when people are deciding how they want to treat you know these very serious medical conditions um, like you pointed out, that they have a more realistic uh, picture of, of what those effects might be. Because, like, cannabis may help uh, you have a better appetite, and maybe you'll be able to eat better and have better energy or something and give you a better fighting chance, potentially, you know, at certain things. But that doesn't mean that you then just, like, turn your back on all other therapies and just rely on cannabis to treat your cancer. Um, the outcomes, even though there are all of these miracle stories floating around you know in the industry about it um unfortunately there are a lot of cases that don't get talked about where it it did not you know have those effects and um yeah it's it's unfortunate but it's it's important it's it's hard um to find this balance between those two camps yeah yeah it's it's very hard um it's um <clears throat> also this topic is of course very hard to talk about uh, yeah. i mean yeah that it's horrible, horrible. Uh, but um, yeah, uh, people can try whatever they want to try as long as they do it well informed. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And uh, what did the development of Canify look like? Did that kind of come in? You said it kind of grew over time. Were there kind of stages? How did that get put together? And is that something that you did uh, by yourself or in collaboration with um, other colleagues and that sort of thing? Yeah, you, you're never a soloist, but always an orchestra. Yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> Absolutely. Um, so how it started was that um, 
I thought, okay, there is, a, we want to be this objective source and we want it to be actionable. Because uh, I, I remember reading a whole article about cannabis and autism and all kinds of genes. And at the end of the article, I thought, this is very interesting, but so what? And <laughs> yeah, if I am, yeah. if I am a, an autistic patient or a parent of an autistic patient, then what do I do? <clears throat> is there anything that I can do? Yeah. And yeah, and therefore I thought it needs to be to be very actionable as well. And um, there is a lot of information out there that I know of that can influence um, cannabis treatment, cannabis dosing, that is not applied. Um, those are, let's say, the scanned articles that are now maybe put online uh, in the 1970s, uh, maybe later as well, but um, because only scientists read them typically, uh, they don't, do not necessarily reach the physicians or reach uh, the patients. So um, what we started doing was gathering all this information, making a very big database and deciding what the most important factors are uh, that are relevant to people who consider using cannabis as a treatment for their symptom. And um, from that database, we made um, a questionnaire. Um, we have been thinking about uh, various ways of doing this. I mean, I know there are a lot of companies out there where you can send them tissue, let's say, uh, right. for yeah, uh, genetic analysis, etc. But I, I still really believe that what we have is far more uh, of a predictive value um, than any genetic research out there right now uh, for, for the purpose of what we're using it for. We're not trying to determine whether you're a fast or slow metabolizer, but much mm -hmm. more than that it is not really something you can use for uh, cannabis treatment at this moment uh, in general. So um, we made this questionnaire, uh, tested it on people, and um, uh, we improved and improved and improved. And we still, it's still not perfect, and it will never be probably. But right. we, yeah, it, I think still it's the the best thing out there for um, a standardized um, questionnaire, standardized outcome. And uh, so what it does, you fill in a questionnaire. And after you fill in a questionnaire, you answer questions like, uh, what type of symptom do you want to treat? Mm -hmm. uh, some personal characteristics. And uh, based off of that, we give you a summary of uh, scientific literature that's out there, uh, as well as uh, a list of that, uh, of the references of that literature. So you can just click on the URL and look where it comes from. And after that, we give you a match of that literature with products. We're not saying we are recommending product A, B, or C, mm -hmm. uh, nothing like that. We give you a product match to see um, how similar the product uh, can be compared to the literature, given that these products have not been tested themselves, uh, mm -hmm. they have different quality grade, things like that. But still, um, we know that uh, THC is not CBD, so there is not a match there. On the other hand, um, some people do not really know um, so if I use five milligrams inhalation, is that the same as five milligrams oral? Yeah. No, it's not. But uh, uh, yeah, trying to make that really insightful and tangible is what we try to do. So it's really uh, a tool that helps people find uh, the scientific literature relevant for them as well as product matches. Yeah. And when you're, um, 
when you're collecting all of the scientific literature, do you have a way of, um, like I assume you put a heavier value on human clinical research versus like in vitro cell culture studies or in vivo rodent studies and that sort of thing. So is there, um, um, are you using only human clinical data in that or are you kind of using it all but sort of weighting things differently um, based on how relevant it would be? Yeah, so I know a lot of tools out there use uh, animal data. We don't. Uh, we okay. only, yeah. yeah, we only use uh, human data. Uh, I actually tell people like if if uh, you would be based off of studies on me, you would probably mm -hmm. not be happy, uh, let alone if it would be based off of uh, a rodent. Right. Um, yeah, and then thereby there are a lot of, um, you know, uh, rodents are sometimes nice models to test things on, but a lot of things are not translatable. Uh, uh, addiction is not translatable. Can an animal feel high? You don't know. Um, all these things that are mainly, uh, yeah, brain related are just so hard to translate. So, um, that's not yeah, really that's, um, one of the things that I bring up in some of the education that I do that sometimes upsets people and is related to why you, um, didn't want to do some of the neuroscience research that you did, but I point out like one claim that's often made about cannabinoids. I think it's about CBD is about its, um, one of the claims about its anti-anxiety and anti-depressant um, uh, qualities that it's like 20 or 30 times um, more effective than certain pharmaceuticals. And then I point out that some of the research that supports that are these like um, uh, force swim tests or tail suspension tests with the rodents. And I try to explain how um, those types of kind of psychological studies are done in rodents and, you know, that you're essentially trying to make an assumption that the behavior of the rodent searching for a platform in the water, you know, or fighting to live like these sorts of things are correlated with, uh, things like depression or anxiety. Um, but you know, there are obviously some limitations to that. And that usually surprises people when I bring that up. Cause a lot of people don't know how that research is done or how some of those claims, you know, come about. Yeah, absolutely. I've seen such weird examples in, in the cannabis space. Um, I saw one time, um, a company that said that, uh, limonene, uh, can treat asthma, um, that was based off of one particular, uh, rat species that had, uh, one particular, uh, inflammatory marker go down after they got uh, a dose of limonene you would never get in a way that you would never get because often these uh, compounds are given intraperitoneally. Well, if I would inject uh, cannabinoids or terpenes into your uh, peritoneum, you would also not respond the same as when you would inhale it voluntarily. And um, uh, besides that, limonene is, has actually um, been, been, been shown to, in some people, uh, cause uh, asthmatic re reactions. Yeah. Yeah, from working with uh, citruses, but also uh, cleaning agents. Yeah, uh, yeah, and limonene is one of these compounds that oxidizes really quickly and easily, and then it can be extremely irritating. Um, and let's uh, go down this line a little bit, because I think people would be really interested to hear your your thoughts on this. So on um, the concept of terpenes and their pharmacological actions, and then more broadly, this concept of the entourage effect. Can you speak a little bit to what we actually know about the pharmacology of the entourage effect and then what we definitely don't know compared to the claims that are made in the industry? 
Oh yeah, absolutely. I know you've had Ethan Russo on the show. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so he wrote this really good article that you also talked about at uh, Taming THC, um, uh, which means yeah, in, in influencing THC's effects, of course, with compounds like uh, cannabinoids. Uh, the term entourage effect was actually uh, first uh, brought up in the, the late 1990s um, by a group in Israel uh, after they. Uh, soul that endocannabinoids together can give a bigger effect than the sum of the individual parts. Um, and um, uh, now the term entourage effect is interpreted in uh, different ways, um, really focusing on the cannabinoids. And some people even see the definition of the entourage effect um, that a sum of the compounds gives a beneficial effect and takes away the side effect. So mm -hmm. um, th there are various definitions of or interpretations, I must say, floating around. Um, and if you are asking about the, um, uh, the interaction between cannabinoids or actually the, the, the plant compounds of cannabis, because maybe also terpenes, um, what do they do? Well, uh, it is true that um, uh, compounds influence each other. Sure. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, they can influence each other on different ways on um, how the, the compounds uh, go through the body, uh, what the body does to the compounds. You can see that when you take other medication as well. So some medication needs to be taken, for example, together with food, other medication. You cannot use grapefruit juice when you use right. it. Yeah, so there, there are compound in interactions everywhere there. And that's the same with cannabis. A um, very famous example is, of course, uh, the combination of THC and CBD. So uh, CBD, um, um, in some cases, can influence THC uh, effects. Uh, it can influence the anxiety level of THC. It can influence um, psychotic-like uh, behavior of, of THC. Um, not so much the high feeling, maybe in very high doses. Right. Uh, but yeah, there is an interaction there on various uh, physiological systems and terpene compounds um, also can influence effects. They can influence the, um, the absorption of, of, of fatty compounds, for example, into the body. Um, so yeah, there can be uh, um, those, those type of effects. And then when you are asking, um, do these compounds together give a more beneficial effect than, for example, an isolate of one cannabinoid, an mm -hmm. isolate of THC or CBD? Um, that is, uh, science has not really, does not have an answer, but anecdotally, when you speak with people, uh, they will say that they um, experience um, a combination of the compounds uh, generally as more pleasant than an isolate. Uh, which is, of course, very important information. Uh, on the other hand, um, uh, studies give very contrasting um, uh, results. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, there are some studies that say that indeed um, an extract gives um, a more beneficial effect or fewer side effects than an isolate. But the other way has been seen as well. One study with MS patients found that THC's uh, effects were uh, more beneficial than a combination effect. Uh, on the other hand, um, <laughs> we see actually more and more of these studies uh, coming out, especially for uh, CBD. And very recently, uh, I've seen, I think, three studies studying 
CBD isolate versus uh, compound combination. And then the conclusion was a compound uh, combination extract is much better than CBD isolate. Um, but I also, I read the text and I looked at the graphs and in the graphs I saw something very different and in the text itself, some conclusions that, that the authors don't give. So um, be really, really, um, yeah, uh, critical about the data that you see and do not always believe what people write because very, very unfortunately, even in peer-reviewed studies, it's often very dependent on who paid the study, for example, and what the outcome is going to be. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a really, really good point. And um, it's, it's challenging because you have so many people that want to read these studies that um, don't have uh, the training to understand how to interpret uh, scientific scientific papers, and a lot of times people rely on the abstracts, for instance, um, to kind of digest a lot of that stuff. And I'm guilty of that sometimes too when I'm in a hurry, you know, and rushing through. Of course. Um, but uh, that's a really, really good point that you should always look at the data itself and try to come to your own conclusions as best you can and compare that to the discussions and the conclusions that the the authors are presenting i've i've definitely seen that a few times um several times in studies that purport to identify certain um like toxic responses of some cannabinoids and you look at the effects and the effects are very like negligible like barely statistically significant um, but then the, in the discussion it's talked about as if this is something that warrants like regulatory response and you know all of these sort of things um, where you're like, oh, I don't know. Um, and uh, another issue that you just pointed out that I think a lot of people aren't aware of are how contradictory some cannabis research studies can be. Um, and that right now with cannabis research, we have this weird, well, it's not a weird situation. It's a situation that affects all of biomedical research, but uh, we have a reproducibility issue um, that we, we don't have a ton of studies in the first place, even though depending on who you talk to, they think there's a lot of cannabis research and to an extent there is, but not a lot that's been reproduced. Yeah. And, and so it's, I, I always urge people to um, be very cautious about drawing conclusions about a research study that hasn't been reproduced by, you know, two or more, uh, you know, different groups. Um, Cause it, we just get surprised over and over again in science that what we thought was true maybe doesn't hold up in different patient populations or under different circumstances or whatever. Um, and it's complicated. And on this issue of terpenes, uh, a claim that's often made is that certain terpenes will like help cannabinoids cross the blood brain barrier more easily. Um, that sort of thing. Can you speak a little bit specifically to terpenes and some of those claims and what, um, information actually exists to support any of that? Yeah, um, so um, there is information in uh, uh, non-human studies indeed that say that. And that's also very logical because you cannot mm -hmm. easily do these uh, studies in humans. Um, uh, not always necessarily have these studies been done with cannabinoids, by the way. So uh, they look at different compounds uh, and then look at permeability of the brain, permeability of the skin uh, yeah. and, and other uh, barriers. Um but uh, one important thing to mention in this context, I think, is um, uh, 
what we are actually looking at, uh, the, the real concentrations used in these studies, uh, the real amounts. Um, if, we use, uh, if we look at cannabis, then um, do you know what the terpene concentration of cannabis is, uh, approximately? Uh, well, the flower, anywhere from, what, like half a percent to three percent or something like that, usually is what I've seen in the lab. Yeah, and they are very volatile compounds as well. So if you start smoking or vaporizing, how much is actually does enter your body at that point? Right. Yeah. Uh, so, oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to say, yeah, that's something I've, I've always wondered. You know, if you're smoking, um, and a lot of times when we talk about terpenes, usually people are referring to these monoterpenes, these really lightweight terpenes, and, and then the sesquiterpenes. Although I, I try to always point out that terpenes, is a, it's a huge class of, of compounds um, with very different actions. Um, but yeah, I've wondered that, like how, what concentration of terpenes actually make it not just into the vapor or the smoke, but then also, you know, actually get into the blood um, when they're administered. I don't, I don't know of any studies that have really tried to look at that in a sophisticated way yet, like they have um, with cannabinoids and some of the pharmacokinetic research that's been done on that, but. Yeah, well, um, <clears throat> there, there, there is, uh, to my knowledge, no study that looked at it. Uh, mm -hmm. However, there is a study ongoing at this moment. And, uh, oh, exciting. Exactly. That's very exciting. And um, Ethan is actually, Ethan Russo is also uh, involved in that uh, study. Um, so uh, let's see. Uh, I hope the outcomes will, uh, yeah, it, it, they're, still, they're still conducting the study. It's still ongoing. They're still dosing patients, but I can't wait to see the results. Yeah, man, that's going to be really, really fascinating. Um, moving on a little bit, I know that you're involved in um, a lot of different types of research projects that you're trying to get grants for and that sort of thing. I know um, off camera we talked about work you're trying to do with pain and with sleep and a number of other things. So um, can you talk a little bit about that? Let's start with pain because pain is a really fascinating one considering that pain is one of the main conditions of why people use cannabis in the first place. Uh, when you look at states that have medical cannabis laws, it's usually like 50% of people that have medical cards, it's usually for pain. Um, so uh, can you describe to listeners a little bit about um, kind of where your interest is in that and the work that you're trying to do to study how cannabinoids affect pain? Yeah, of course. Uh, so. Um yeah, pain again, we just spoke about cancer, but pain is also a reason why some people just don't want to yeah. live anymore. It's horrible and um, it is so hard to treat as well. Uh, pain is an interesting thing because it's also hard to measure. Um, one of uh, my research collaborators is actually right now, he's a professor in anesthesiology and he is trying to find objective measures to measure pain hard yeah that's very very hard because he wants to know when someone is under anesthesia can they still you know um, have pain and how how do you measure that so he's he's trying to find ways of of studying that um but yeah back to its subject subjectiveness um that that shows in various ways uh, pain is experienced when um, you have different mental states it's different mm -hmm. when it's morning afternoon or evening uh, when you conduct pain studies, you need to make sure that uh, the assistant taking the, the actual measures is of the same gender, because especially males, but also females, are influenced whether the test um, assistant is a male mm. or female. They wow. will 
Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, so, so, so all these things are so mental, actually, um, that, uh, that, that that is very, very important to realize. And I also want to look back again at the translatability from animals to humans, taking into consideration all these aspects that are important for, um, for your pain experience. But then uh, cannabis and pain. Um, cannabis has never shown to um, work on acute pain. So if you hit your your thumb with a hammer, for example, <laughs> taking cannabis is probably not going to help much. Uh, but it has uh, shown um, to be effective in chronic pain. So that's pain that's going on for a longer period of time. You see many people with lower back pain or neuropathic pain um, using cannabis. Uh, but then... Um, it works for some people, but in half of the people, cannabis will not have a good effect. And it is not well understood how come. And it's not well understood which uh, cannabis product works best. Um, yeah. One, yeah, pharmaceutical product uh, that's not in the United States. It's not available, but outside of the United States, it's available in uh, almost 30 countries. Um, that is um, a combination of THC and CBD in a one-to-one -one ratio. Uh, it's a sublingual spray. Sadifex. Sadifex, yes. Yeah. Yeah, um, by GW Pharmaceuticals. And um, it's, it's used for, for pain as well. Um, so THC is being used. THC-CBD combinations are being used against pain. Uh, but the ideal, let's say, uh, compound composition... Um, is, is not well known. Some people will say, hey, I use this strain, it worked well, and that strain, it's not working at all. So um, there's a big need for, for understanding that better. And uh, that is also um, one of the reasons why uh, I am a co-applicant of um, uh, a grant that we submitted um, very recently. Uh, the outcome should be uh, late May, um, who it gets awarded to. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it's very exciting uh, yeah. doing that together with uh, two centers. Um, one research center called the Center of Human Drug Research in Leiden with Dr. Geert-Jan Groeneveld. And um, on the other hand, an academic center, the Leiden University Medical uh, Center, uh, with Professor uh, Albert Dahan. Uh, he is the professor that is also um, doing studies now on uh, measuring uh, pain in an objective manner. Yeah. And yeah, with this grant, uh, we hope to um, answer a few objectives. Um, one is uh, ideal THC-CBD combination for pain. And um, there is more to that than just um, looking at the ideal ratio for uh, fighting pain. We just also mentioned the entourage effect, how THC and CBD work together. Uh, some people are not using cannabis product, not because it might not be effective, but because they're too much bothered by the side effects. For example, yeah, yeah the intoxication. They don't like that. They don't want to use uh, cannabis for that reason. Um, if you can uh, find a good ratio of THC and CBD, what uh, might happen is that people um, will have a decrease of side effects. Of course, only if that this does not... Um, uh, influence the pain uh experience in a negative way right yeah yeah and um in this study are you planning on also trying to decipher differences between different types of pain um so you mentioned like neuropathic pain um 
but can you speak a little bit to that about how pain is is different um not just subjectively but even the sources of pain oh absolutely uh <laughs> this would require another separate podcast i think <laughs> yeah there's so many things that we uh, that we want to look at um so we really need to do this very well if we look at the patient group that we're going to include there are different uh, um, uh, different patients of pain with different uh, diagnoses mm-hmm. um, and um, a different diagnosis is often related to uh, to the source of the pain of course pain can um, uh, happen on many different levels. Uh, pain can be um, a, a local um, disruption, uh, tissue that is broken. Uh, it can be in the, um, the nerve itself uh, that leads the signal to the brain. So it can be damaged in the, in the spinal cord. It can also be something in the brain itself that is not functioning properly and therefore you have the pain experience. So um, pain can happen in, in many different ways. Uh, then uh, Pain can also express itself in many different ways. Mm. So um, something that is not really commonly studied, but that's something we want to study now, is that you can have uh, uh, a pain that is... um, uh, I'm trying to find the correct words in English, but uh, like an electrical pain. It can be a nagging pain. It can be uh, a knocking pain, let's say, that pulsates. uh, there are so many different types of pain. And is there maybe a relation between cannabis and that type of pain, the pain experience? Um, also, um, genotyping. Yeah, you can look at mm-hmm. the phenotyping. Is there a particular genotype that responds differently to a particular type of pain? Um, th- yeah, uh, there are there are many many um, things. I'm I'm using these words like phenotyping and genotype. What I mean with genotyping is what does your genetic makeup looks like? With phenotyping, uh, I mean how this is uh, expressed. So it's a combination of your environment as well that is influential. Right, and another thing that I that comes to mind, just because I struggle with chronic pain, so it's something I'm intimately familiar with, uh, um, but how um, like attention and memory affect the experience of pain. You know, that if you can get your mind off of the pain and directed towards something else for a while that um, it seems like the volume of that pain can sort of turn down um, at least for some time Um, and it's something i've noticed even like with meditation that that can influence the experience of pain um, even if it's not necessarily um, affecting the uh, you know what's causing the pain the pain's still there um, but making it uh, more tolerable which is something i find fascinating and linking to this you know, interest with neuroscience and the brain and, and how this all um, comes together. That is um, something that I would really like to understand more about, you know, what is influencing that that volume knob, so to speak, in the brain um, that's sort of taking that signal and saying, you know, what, we don't have to pay attention to that so much right now, even though it's still there, still being generated. Um, and another thing I wanted to ask you is what do we currently know about the pharmacology of how cannabinoids like THC or CBD affect pain? Yeah, that's a a, a very good question. And um, this is where the animal studies uh, uh, are important, by the way. Uh, I want to make one more comment about your uh, distraction, by the way. Oh, yes. Yeah, go for it. Yeah, Yeah, because you say you try to actually, um, yeah, uh, 
try not to, I don't know, I, I may be saying it a bit bluntly, but uh, focus on something else so yes, that the yeah. focus will go away from the pain. And that is also why you see uh, that some people um, or animals with pain might touch the region, lick it, um, mm. uh, because then you uh, stimulate receptors around that area and you will actually feel that. And yes. Not, yeah, if you have local pain that's very interesting yeah so you stimulate other sensations to try to dull down that that specific painful sensation yeah, yeah. that's a really good point i never thought about that with the licking and everything why why different animals do that that's fascinating mm -hmm. yeah and then back to uh to 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 the, the physiology physiology of pain um uh, this is something that is uh yeah, still being studied. A lot of studies have been done already. Um, one group um, by uh, Professor Andrea Holman, uh, if you want to read more of that, uh, I would really recommend uh, uh, people to, to read her work and look at her studies in, uh, in animals. Um, but it's, yeah. The main dynamics that I'm familiar with, with are some of the data around like glutamate and GABA and the influences in that. Um, oh yeah, absolutely. Some of the signaling in the brain um, and, yeah. and that, that fascinating effect that cannabinoids have of retrograde signaling, being able to go backwards across the synapse to try to um, affect those changes um, is, is super interesting. But that's, you know, kind of what I was wondering is, is there more to the puzzle than just the, the glutamate GABA? Oh yeah, yeah, you know, absolutely. Kind of Absolutely. Uh, there, um, so so definitely. They're they're on different levels. So on the level mm -hmm. of um, where there where there's tissue damage, um, uh, you have um, uh, well maybe people are familiar with the the, the terms of prostaglandin, uh, COX two inhibition. Yeah. Uh, yeah uh, so those are things that I would have to then uh, explain. But on that level, cannabinoids are uh, definitely uh, influencing uh, pain response. Uh, uh, cannabinoids also influence pain response in a particular um, area in uh, uh, the spinal cord and also a particular lower brain area um, uh, and, uh, uh, and, and, and uh, yeah, influence uh, um, signaling there. Uh, so th there are various levels at which cannabinoids uh, grab onto, but uh, it is very hard to say then why does it work in one uh, person and why yeah. does it not work in another person and because cannabinoids um, have the function of uh, keeping homeostasis in yeah. the body uh, it is more likely for them to actually be effective in people with very complex uh, pain uh, syndromes mm -hmm. that work on multiple levels because if you look at um, other uh, pain uh, medications they very typically only work on one of those levels yeah and is there any data showing how cannabinoid receptors and endocannabinoids um, are expressed under chronic pain conditions uh, you know whether it's it's animal studies or what but um, that's something that I'd be interested to talk about yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. Uh, so um, in general, uh, the cannabinoid uh, system responds to any imbalance in the body. And that can be with uh, chronic pain, that can be with uh, schizophrenia, um, with, with inflammatory diseases. Uh, so then you see that um, uh, the, the, the cannabinoid level is, is deregulated. And typically what you measure for that is the expression of the cannabinoid receptors because the mm -hmm. endocannabinoids themselves um, they're not always so easy to measure because yeah. they have a relatively short half-life 
Uh, that means that they are they only live for a very short time. Uh, they only get, um, yeah, of course, uh, expressed um, on demand, and yeah, uh, uh, yeah and and also um, uh, they, they it is it is possible to influence cannabinoid levels by your food. So yes, if you yes, start good point. Yeah, eating more fatty acids, for example, your cannabinoid levels will go up. It's easier to produce them. So um, if you want to measure them in patients, what is typically done is to um, uh, image the receptor level. And one very famous study was done in people with post-traumatic stress syndrome, where you see that their uh, cannabinoid receptor levels are very upregulated. And it is not like a primary cause, like, oh, uh, there is this trauma, now let's upregulate the receptor levels. But it's really um, uh, a result uh, of changed endocannabinoid levels. Interesting. And, yes. Wow, so, so basically um, the body is, is not necessarily... They're, I'm trying to think of the way to, to say this. So it may not necessarily be the case that um, there's some epigenetic change or something and the body is starting to produce more cannabinoid receptors in order to combat something, but that um, the body's just getting signaled to produce more endocannabinoids to try to uh, cause greater stimulation of the receptors that are there. Is that kind of what you're Saying. Yeah, it can it can actually yeah. go both ways. Uh, so one way is indeed uh, um, uh, you want to uh, increase the uh, endocannabinoids, and the other way can be oh uh, I don't uh, sense any endocannabinoids. Let's uh, make more receptors because maybe I have more a bigger chance to fight them. Yeah, and something that I find really fascinating, going back to the cancer piece, is that different. Um, diseases, different um, affected tissues, like in the context of cancer, exhibit cannabinoid receptors in different ways. Um, and I think that's something that maybe a lot of people are not aware of, that it's not a, a sort of one size fits all kind of model, but that every different type of cancer and in different tissues, you get these, these unique changes um, that make targeted therapies a little more challenging. Oh, it is, it is extremely challenging. Um, uh, outside of the fact that there are more f than 400 different types of cancer <laughs> <laughs> yeah. to start with as a problem, another problem is that cancer, it's not just cancer. Uh, you see that cancer patients also go through different phases and so does cancer. So uh, cancer can actually, uh, is very adaptable and it can change over time. So the type of cancer you have right now uh, might still be the same type of cancer in a few months from now, but it might express itself differently. It might have different receptor levels. It had probably changed its blood flow, maybe the location. Yeah. So it's really changing and changing what type of uh, markers it expresses in response to. Yeah, yeah, and and this point too of um, the difficulties of trying to measure the uh, level of endocannabinoids in the body, I think, is another sort of um, underappreciated aspect of the endocannabinoid system because um, everyone's hoping for an easy way to measure the endocannabinoid system to try to develop targeted therapies, um, and that is uh, a tricky thing when you don't have these compounds being stored like you would like serotonin, for instance, that's going to get stored in these little vesicles, these little, you know, 
uh, pockets where they'll be released when they're needed and then replenished or something like that, that it, you know, it's the body just kind of waits until it needs them. And then, like you said, I'm so glad you brought up the thing about diet. Um, cause that's another thing I think that doesn't get talked about enough, but that these fatty acids are used as the precursors, um, to make these things. And so the fact that your body makes these things on demand is something that really makes your diet extremely important. Uh, cause if it doesn't have those precursors available, then you run into other problems. And, and this leads into uh, uh, something I wanted to know your opinion on. What are your thoughts around this concept of um, um, endocannabinoid deficiencies or clinical endocannabinoid deficiency that, um, once again, is uh, I talked about a lot, but it's something I feel like we don't understand much about. Yeah, that's right, because it hasn't been studied. Yeah. Uh, it's a theory and it's a very likely theory. I mean, look at uh, people who um, suffer from uh, depression or suicidality uh, that have a low serotonin tone, for example, um, which is also a, a, a messenger molecule in the brain. Um, so it's very likely that um, some people might not have a, a healthy or uh, an average normal endocannabinoid tone. They're I don't think there's any proof for it, but it's certainly an interesting thing to study. Uh, but there are also companies out there who try to say, well, you need to take CBD every day, just like you have to take uh, vitamins every day. And yeah, that's, that's, a, <laughs> that's a stretch. And then yeah, by the way, yeah. CBD doesn't necessarily bind to every aspect of the cannabinoid system. <laughs> that's a different story. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And on the, the CBD note, because we we haven't really talked about that specifically. What are your thoughts right now on the CBD industry as it's developing across the world and, you know, particularly in the United States, you know, where we are right now? Um, do you have any particular uh, concerns about how that all seems to be developing and some of the hype around CBD? Uh, yeah, it's uh, certainly uh, very interesting to see uh, what is happening with CBD. And I think like a anything else, you should just use it in a wise way. Um, yeah. And uh, uh, know why uh, people want to use it. Uh, there are some problems with CBD, though. And uh, those problems are not always well communicated uh, to the public. Um, one important question is where does your CBD come from? because CBD in itself might be relatively innocent. Uh, the way you use it uh, might get you into trouble, but also uh, if you don't know where it's coming from, and you don't know if it is CBD you're getting at all, uh, or maybe even other compounds, then you also have a problem. What I meant with that CBD uh, is innocent, but can be a problem. What I'm really actually meaning is it, but it's potential drug-drug interaction. CBD yeah. is known to give drug-drug interactions. Um, so if you are using other medication that can have an interaction with CBD, uh, this can, depending on the type of medication you're using, but this can be a problem. Uh, with drug-drug interaction, I mean that what can happen is that um, you think you take uh, 10 milligrams of something, but at the end, due to the interaction, you're effectively having double the dose. Uh, is one example. Uh, it can also go the other way around. It can actually decrease the dose you are taking of a medication. And uh, so that, that is very important to realize for particular medications um, that can cause very bad uh, yeah. side effects. Yeah, can get toxic. Uh, so that's one thing. But CBD itself doesn't really give a whole lot of side effects. In fact, a lot of the side effects that are attributed to CBD 
could maybe even be uh, caused by um, drug-drug interactions of mm-hmm. other medication that people were using. But I think you discussed that in one of your previous episodes yeah. as well. Yeah. Yeah, um, it's, it's it's something that um, is is worth drawing attention to that some of the the side effect profiles around CBD come from some of like the Epidiolex research, which I think another thing that a lot of people don't realize is that with Epidiolex, Epidiolex is designed to be um, a complementary therapy with uh, traditional epilepsy drugs. And so all of the research that they did was typically with children that were taking Valproate and all sorts of other epilepsy drugs and then adding CBD in to see how it affected things. It, I, to my knowledge, I don't think Epidiolex is designed to be a um, sort of a standalone treatment that, you know, you're just going to use CBD and then, you know, not need other medications. Um, and like you pointed out, these these side effects that um, have been attributed to CBD, some of those very well might be just side effects from those other medications that these patients were taking at the time. And the liver damage piece is one that Ethan Russo talked about when I spoke with him that he wanted to draw attention to that some of the liver damage um, effects that have been published in literature are from those epilepsy drugs that the levels have gotten boosted in their bodies um, because of those effects on the liver enzymes and everything, um, and that it's not actually a side effect of CBD by itself, and that's an important distinction to make. Yeah, it, it, these are really tricky grounds we're on right now because if yep. you think that some of the side effects might be caused by CBD, uh, or some of the effects, uh, or not caused by CBD, uh, but by Clobazam or. Are the, the, the beneficial effects actually caused by CBD or by an upregulation right. of the medication? So there is a lot of discussion about that. Uh, the main researcher, Oren Davinsky, um, uh, did measure uh, drug levels uh, in the blood of uh, these patients uh, from the co- uh, concomitant uh, medication mm-hmm. they were using. Uh, <clears throat> but um, he did not publish everything. And actually, one of my co-researchers has asked him um, to share this data, which he didn't. So um, uh, this is one of the objectives of our grant application as well, to just look at it ourselves. Uh, Not for epilepsy medication, but for pain medication. Yeah, I think that's uh, very much needed. I mean, all of the clinicians I've been speaking to lately, you know, that's where their heads are at is, you know, they say that they haven't seen the negative interactions yet. Um, But one of the doctors I talked to specifically put it really well. He said he felt like those stories of those interactions are just on the horizon because we don't know enough and people are starting to feel more comfortable using CBD um, that, you know, you just have more people using it with other medications and everything. And uh, the concern that multiple of the doctors and nurses that I've talked to have pointed out is that if we move too fast and don't understand how it's going to interact with things like pain medications, a big one, um, that you know, we could have some very unfortunate accidents that happen that then kind of send us backwards as far as the ability to even work with cannabinoids as as therapies. Yeah. Um, and there was a recent case study or report that was published that's been circulating on social media lately that um, has gotten kind of controversial about a potential interaction with meloxicam that um, uh, there was a patient, I think she was like 52 years old. She was in her 50s and um, had the Stevens-Johnson syndrome reaction where her her skin just essentially started peeling off and hyper-inflammatory reaction, and and she died of septic shock. 
And the um, authors of the report pointed out that this started very close in time to when she took a, um, a, a liposomal CBD product. So something that had been emulsified, theoretically the bioavailability would be higher. Um, you know, but obviously there's no way to form a direct causal link just based on, on that level of data. But it does uh, precipitate an important discussion to have of how serious could these drug interactions actually be and um, what do clinicians need to know if they know that their patients are using CBD. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, one of the things that I noticed from the article is that um, the um, compounds that, uh, let's say the, 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 the CBD formulation that she took uh, was actually not fully tested. So right. I'm also wondering what else might have been in there. Um, but apart from that, uh, I am not a clinician, so I cannot make any statements about this. Uh, but um, and, and I should look way more into this, but I understand from one uh, clinician that the Stephen Johnson syndrome um, does not happen overnight and uh, mm -hmm. needs at least a week of, I don't know if it's kind of an incubation time right, to develop. Yeah. So. Um, I will need to look into that further because if the, the symptoms start at the same time as CBD, then I, and, and that right. would be true, then also I'm not so sure if it was really CBD. Right, exactly. Yeah, because I think the proximity was just like a couple of days, like the, uh, the, where she really started to notice the symptoms a couple of days after. So that's a really good point. If Stevens Johnson syndrome requires um, that extended period of time before symptoms even present themselves, then that would. Uh, sort of discredit that association um, between that. But that's the quality thing is something I, I wonder about a lot because, um, you know, in some of the states that have legalized cannabis and have set up testing rules and that sort of thing, um, we're getting better data on the quality of cannabis products. It's still not good enough, in my opinion, um, in most states. But um, with the CBD industry, it's really still a very wild market. Um, you have some CBD products that are coming out of highly regulated states that are tested, you know, pretty thoroughly, um, at least for major contaminants like pesticides and metals and, you know, and that sort of thing. And then you have CBD products that undergo no testing or fake testing. You know, people just make certificates of analysis that aren't real. Um, and uh, that is definitely something that I think um, anyone listening should be very cautious about. Um, because not all of these CBD products are the same. It's a huge gradient as far as quality goes. Um, another thing I know that you're interested in that I wanted to talk to you about is sleep. Um, I know that in one of your presentations that I saw online, you, you talked a little bit about this, about how um, sometimes there's a misconception around how cannabis affects sleep. Um, so can we talk a little bit about that? What's your experience with how, um, or, or particularly let's talk about THC-rich cannabis, um, how it affects sleep and what those misconceptions are that you alluded to in your presentation that I saw? Yeah, I, I wasn't even planning on saying anything about that because I know exactly <laughs> what you're talking about. Uh, but I was standing there and then I realized, wait, someone told me this anecdote about sleep. This is interesting to mention. So I will, I will mention it in a minute, but um, about uh, THC and sleep. Um, so uh, cannabis or THC does influence the sleep. Um, it doesn't necessarily improve the sleep, but I also want to uh, discuss first the concept of sleep uh, yes, because that's yeah. very important to uh, uh, for the cannabis discussion. 
many people who use cannabis for sleep actually don't use it directly for sleep. A lot of people with sleep problems do not have a real sleep disorder. What they actually have is uh, they suffer from chronic pain. Um, they suffer from anxiety. Uh, they, they are stressed in any other way. And they use cannabis to take away those symptoms to help them sleep better. And I would like to distinguish the indirect effect of sleep from uh, direct effects on sleep disorders. Yeah, um, very good point. Yeah, and, and that is, I find it so interesting that um, with uh, uh, a friend of mine, uh, Dr. Rolf Fronsek in at the Sleep Expertise Center in the Netherlands, we actually started surveying uh, sleep patients, uh, people who really go to sleep clinic because of sleep uh, disorders. And um, we uh, just rounded up the study and are analyzing the results uh, to see uh, if people uh, with particular sleep disorders also have a higher cannabis use than the average population. Uh, that is also uh, one of the reasons why uh, there was an interest in, um, in inflammatory uh, bowel disorders like Crohn's uh, disease and ulcerative colitis, um, because um, especially Crohn's uh, disease people have a way higher uh, cannabis use than the average population, which might be related to self-medication. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so back to uh, sleep, um, because uh, just like with pain, sleep... Um, is, is, is not just one thing, but it's a whole uh, uh, complex uh, maze of all kinds of processes that are happening. <laughs> yeah. And oh, <laughs> that would also require a different uh, podcast <laughs> episode. Um, uh, so, uh, and, and, and this is also one of the reasons why you should not just uh, trust any random in vitro study uh, that people read. Uh, because, uh, for example, in, in petri dish experiments, in animal experience, uh, experiments, you see that, um, for example, cannabinoids um, have uh, an inhibiting effect on an enzyme that produces melatonin. So if you right. take CBD and melatonin together, what, what does it do? And yeah, so um, uh, uh, THC has, is very, very known for uh, the effect on uh, um, uh, REM sleep. Um, rapid eye movement uh, sleep that is um, uh, a, a period of time a particular uh, sleep phase because if you sleep you're not always sleeping exactly the same and you know that because if you're woken up by one or the other sometimes you wake up and you're instantly alert and you're there and sometimes uh, you, you you don't even <laughs> yeah, hear your yeah. alarm clock yeah <laughs> and that is because you're in a different phase of your sleep and uh, the REM phase is the sleep in which you have dreams so that's when people People eh, have little movements and, um, and you maybe uh, kick someone out of the bed. I don't know. But <laughs> right, in, that, yeah. Yeah, in that phase of sleep, um, uh, that is uh, inhibited by THC. And you are referring to a story that I told because uh, people say, oh, uh, I use THC to sleep better because I have sleep problems. And what I was saying is that this woman... Uh, I had lunch with, she was telling me also that she was having um, cannabis for her sleep. Um, because if she doesn't use cannabis, she gets all these dreams. Well, guess what? I think actually this person was um, dependent on cannabis for getting a good sleep. Because if you stop using that, 
Then uh, yeah, the lid goes uh, off the trash can, let's say, and then boom, all these dreams all of a sudden come out. And, and that is exactly a problem that people have who are used to using cannabis, who want to stop using cannabis. And then uh, for uh, weeks in a row, um, they will have vivid dreams and often nightmares and just have horrible sleep. Well, if I have horrible sleep for one night, I, I, yeah, I, I'm already very unhappy. And I think if you're, if you can't sleep, then a night lasts eternity. Well, if, imagine that lasting for days or weeks or months. Um, so that is one of the reasons why it's sometimes hard for people to, who want to stop using cannabis to actually stop using cannabis. Um, if, <laughs> if that is uh, also answering your question. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, you know, it's it's a tricky uh, it's a tricky balance um, of trying to understand how cannabis is actually influencing our bodies. And um, one of the reasons I wanted to talk about this is because I've heard the same sort of anecdote from someone else, um, um, almost to a T, the same thing. Um, a health educator that I that I interviewed told me that uh, he works with like um, high schoolers and and college age students, and he said he's had people come to him that said that I I used to think that cannabis was helping me sleep, and then I realized that it actually is causing some weird problems. And when I stopped using cannabis, it was tough getting through those first couple of weeks, but then after that, my sleep normalized and then I now I'm sleeping better than I ever have and it wasn't until I went through that whole process that I realized that actually the sleep I was getting uh, when using cannabis was not as good as the sleep um, that I could get after uh, getting through that and one reason why I like talking about this is because it's one of these things that um, gets circulated in the cannabis industry a lot that you know cannabis will help you sleep and um, some of the research that I'm aware of points out that it it may get you to sleep um but it doesn't necessarily help you uh, sleep deeply for uh, an extended period of time and part of that is because of that rim um inhibition um that you're you're not ever really getting into those like super deep um sleep cycles that that normally you would or you get into them for very brief periods of time um, and it, so it, it just has a very different effect. And I think it highlights um, the nuance, you know, behind all of all of the stuff around cannabis, using cannabis in a therapeutic context, um, which is one reason why I like doing this podcast uh, to talk about that that nuance. Um, but I was I was really happy to hear you share that story because I think it's I think people experience that but feel like their experience is not right because they hear these messages coming from the industry about what cannabis is supposed to do. And so that prevents them from sort of um, accepting what they actually are, are experiencing and they, they keep trying, they keep trying to use cannabis to treat something that, you know, maybe is not actually benefiting them. Yeah, that's right. Um, another good example of this is uh, cannabinol, uh, CBN. Yeah, um, yeah, that people uh, call the the sleep compound. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, and CBN is one of those uh, interesting examples too of uh, the early entourage effect research because uh, of some of that early research that showed that CBN was um, 
they couldn't detect much activity when it, um, doing work with it alone, but when with THC, suddenly had different effects. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it has been studied in uh, in quite some, uh, just a few dozen of people, uh, yeah. 50-something people, different administration forms. But it's not that the, the healthy volunteers were sleeping uh, during the experiments. Yeah. <laughs> right, and then maybe yeah. something else to mention, which might sound uh, a bit, uh, yeah, um, uh, of a completely different topic, but about uh, the primary sleep uh, disorders, I want to mention mm -hmm. uh, narcolepsy patients. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, that's um, something that's also not well studied, but I'm very interested in. Uh, narcolepsy is a disease that uh, it, it's also called hypersomnia. So people who can just fall asleep at moments that they don't want to fall asleep. And um, this has to do with um, a disorder in a particular um, uh, physiological system that is also used for uh, in the body for food regulation, um, hypocretin or orexin system. If you've used of uh, or heard of orexin. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, anorexia uh, is yeah, uh, yeah. yeah 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 so the, this orexin system is also um, uh, has has um, uh, let's say a collaboration with the endocannabinoid system and also therefore is very important um, what cannabis does in these people and uh, I just wanted to mention it because I find it I, if people have stories to share with me I'd love to hear them and I yeah. I really want to uh, to understand more about how these two uh, work together and what this can work uh, mean for patients yeah yeah definitely and how research could be more targeted in the future to try to explore um, those interactions yeah absolutely and oh uh, what are your thoughts? Uh, this just kind of came to me as we're talking about all these research studies and talking about pain and sleep and everything. What are your thoughts on um, the role of the placebo effect in the endocannabinoid system? I know that there's some research indicating that, particularly with pain, so in relation to the, the study that you want to do, that the endocannabinoid system is actually involved in um, the analgesic placebo effect. Um, and so when you're designing a study to try to look at pain in relation to cannabinoids, what do you have to do to try to, um, to try to overcome, uh, some of those, those issues related to the placebo effect? Oh yeah, that's such a good question. And placebo is a real thing. Um, mm -hmm. it's been studied many times. Um, you can influence it in many ways. Uh, placebo effect is different, um, in different cultures. So in uh, oh, Europe and the United States, uh, there's different placebo uh, response ratios. Um, and in, in the United States, it's about a third placebo effect. In Europe, it's uh, below 20. Uh, it's also different in various uh, age groups. So uh, placebo effect is very high in teenagers, for example. Uh, and uh, then the placebo effect is also different in different patient groups. So in some patient groups, you have high placebo effect. In other patient groups, uh, not so much. Um, and this is, uh, it's unfortunate that it wasn't recorded, but I gave a presentation at um, MJ BizCon um, mm -hmm. in uh, December 2019. And uh, there I showed some slides. Um, one of them was a study uh, by Portanoi in 2012, where you saw that there was, um, when you study THC in a CBD combination, and um, uh, uh, you look at the uh, the pain relief uh, that is uh, more than 10%. Uh, 
from baseline, uh, you saw more than 50% uh, response rate. So you think, wow, that's pretty good. And then I showed uh, the audience that that 50% um, response rate was the placebo group uh, that <laughs> responded. So, and therefore, wow. I, yeah, yeah. And then if you look at the high dose group, uh, so people with, I think, uh, 16 sprays of Sativex or so per day, um, they had around the same response as the placebo group. But then if you go lower in dose, um, you had a 70 something percent uh, response rate. So I tried to show that if you see an effect, uh, don't always conclude it's because of treatment if you've not uh, compared it uh, to placebo, even if you have compared it to baseline. Uh, baseline means that, um, okay, I'm going to see how I feel after eating this sandwich. And first I look at how do I feel right now before I'm eating the sandwich? Now I'm feeling very hungry, so I give myself uh, 10, 10 uh, out of 10 hunger score. I eat my sandwich. I do not feel hungry anymore. Maybe I could eat an ice cream. So uh, let's say four, <laughs> four sure, or five yeah. hunger, hungry. So, so that is the baseline. And then the difference now, if I have four versus 10, the difference is, um, is, is six points. Um, if I would not eat a sandwich, would I still feel 10? So, um, and that, that is then, let's say the control group, uh, for example, I, I cannot eat a placebo sandwich, of course. <laughs> uh, so, uh, but, but so you, you compare to baseline to before the treatment, you can compare, uh, to placebo. Um, if you want to uh, set up an experiment and really know how your, um, your compound is doing, you actually want to compare it to an inactive treatment. So if you have um, a candy with uh, CBD or THC in it, then make exactly the same candy with the same uh, uh, smell and flavor. But, and, and that is how you uh, do, do a placebo-controlled uh, study. I would say that without a placebo, um, with these THC products, it is very, very hard uh, to draw any conclusions about the effects. I'm not saying that for every study, a placebo is always required. I've also worked in medical devices and um, you cannot always do placebo. You cannot test a parachute and then test a placebo <laughs> parachute. That's an example we always gave. Um, yeah, but that's yeah. a good example. No, but it's important to, to if you can, to use a placebo to really know which effect you're looking at because people have expectations and if you have expectations um yeah you feel differently i have uh, once read that people are in a romantic relationship if they romanticize their relationship more than people who don't they're much happier in their relationship it's an expectation that you set for yourself that will influence how you feel after using particular medications that is a very likely chance yeah, and, and something that's been on my mind for a long time is, you know, some of, I'm not saying all, but some of the therapeutic benefits that so many people report uh, with cannabis, you know, how much of that is placebo, um, especially given that, you know, despite some of the um, potential adverse side effects, abuse potentials, and like with CBD, drug interaction, stuff like that, but overall, um, physiologically these compounds are relatively safe and so you have a lot of people using them that aren't experiencing negative effects and are experiencing positive effects but how much of that is actually because of cannabis versus uh, the expectation that the industry has built in people's minds um, and and particularly with pain this is very interesting to me just like 
going back to you know what we were talking about earlier the brain's influence over the experience of pain and so i'm really interested to follow um the work of your colleague that's trying to figure out how to objectively um, measure pain um, that's that's really really fascinating to me because that's it's really hard to overcome uh to figure out just particularly in that context you know with um other things like with inflammation, you can study inflammatory markers, and um, with um, I don't know if you're doing um, what's another good example? Um, yeah, epileptic seizures. Yeah, for yeah, see, yeah, yeah. Epilepsy is another great one. You can monitor the frequency of these things, even like like panic attacks and anxiety attacks. You can monitor the frequency of these things, and um, you can also measure things like cortisol levels. You know, all sorts of different things to try to um, get some ob objective measures. But yeah, pain is one of those really challenging ones. And uh, yeah, it just makes me wonder how much of the pain relief that people report experiencing is placebo. And um, if that's the case, then um, what does that mean for their cannabis use? Yeah, yeah, so so uh, there are two things actually I wanna say to that. Um, so one thing is that a lot of people say, well, it, if it doesn't uh, help you, it also doesn't harm you. That is not always the case for cannabis right. products. I think that um, taking cannabis products should be done with real care because some people are sensitive to and, and yeah, severe negative side effects can uh, develop yeah. them. Uh, but on the other hand, all the people that are uh, helped by it, uh, how many of those are placebo? That's, of course, hard to tell if you don't test it. Sometimes you can maybe you know, uh, estimated if you, um, if, if another product comes out, it didn't turn out to actually have a CBD content at all. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it's yeah. occasionally happens. Well, but, uh, but, um, yeah, maybe there is uh, a big uh, placebo response. Is that a problem? No, if people are helped, they're helped, uh, whether it works or not. It's not fair to say that because of the product in that case. Mm. Um, but what um, yeah, bothers me, and that's more like uh, uh, yeah, a social opinion, of course, than, than that it's really valuable. Uh, but if people uh, pay uh, like $20 for a bath bomb or $60 yes. for suppositories, yeah, I, don't, I, I feel bad about that. If they are using a product that they pay so much money for that is actually not helping or placebo, um, that's something that disturbs me. And I feel bad about that because people really have hope that this is what yes. helps them. Yeah. Yeah, no, you're, you're echoing my sentiments exactly, is that the, um, the cost of some of these products is so high, and, and particularly with, with CBD products because they're so widely available to the general population. Uh, that people are going broke, spending hundreds of dollars on on things or thousands of dollars that um, may not actually be, you know, they might be able to do something for free <laughs> that could possibly yeah. elicit the same reaction. And I'm spinning off a little bit here, but the placebo effect is something that just really fascinates me of like, how how can you use the placebo effect in a therapeutic way? You know, if it's possible to influence positive outcomes in patient populations without giving them anything at all, well, that's incredible. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, sometimes uh, sugar tablets are given and people yeah. know it is placebo, but they take it anyway. So, uh, yeah, there, there are various ways uh, indeed. Yeah. Um, and maybe, uh, maybe that's something that, uh, I mean, not for people that are suffering from very serious medical conditions, but for people listening that might be using cannabis products and wonder about um 
whether what they're experiencing is placebo or not is something you just pointed out that is uh, fairly new kind of, you know, in our consciousness, this idea that if you know it's a placebo, it can still have um, a strong placebo effect. For a long time, it, there was a presumption that people had to not know uh, that they were getting placebo in order to get those effects, but you can know. And so it's possible to test this out. Um, you know, if someone's uh, relying on tinctures or something, try a, a totally um, innocuous tincture. Um, I don't know, like pure MCT oil or something and, and see, see what happens. Um, you might be surprised uh, that the effect might be very similar or not. Um, we'll just have to see, but yeah. yeah. Um, another thing tying into, um, that presentation that I referenced earlier in that presentation, you were primarily addressing this question is cannabis safe. And so I didn't want to go through this conversation without asking you when someone asks you that question is cannabis safe, how do you respond? Yeah. Um, it's hard to answer that question yes. because, yeah. Um, yeah, as as probably also the listeners know very well, uh, there's just not cannabis. Uh, yeah. People make distinctions that, and it's a vernacular, or it can be scientific. It can be uh, marijuana versus hemp, THC versus CBD, isolate versus uh, a plant extract. There, what are we talking about? So that <laughs> yeah. would be one of my first questions. Um, what are we talking about? Uh, what do you consider cannabis? Uh, who would you be giving this to, and why would you be giving this to this uh, person? Because there are differences um, between. Um, maybe males and females, but also uh, between healthy versus uh, pa uh, volunteers versus uh, or people versus patients, and um, really, um, it's hard to determine whether something is safe. Definition of safe is something else. Eh? Yeah. People say cannabis is safe because it can cannot kill you. Uh, right. I would not necessarily say that that means that something is safe because it cannot <laughs> kill you. Yeah. It can uh, definitely, definitely your life can be very much ruined without dying. Um, yep. Yeah. So uh, yeah, I would go into a discussion with this person and really try to understand what they're actually asking, what they really want to know so that we can try to address that question as good as we can. Yeah. That's a, uh perfect response it's uh yeah the question of is cannabis safe it just uh elicits uh, a multitude of other questions <laughs> and That's conversations right. that that have to be had yeah uh another thing i wanted to ask you um steering a little bit away from cannabis for a bit because i know you're interested in um plants broadly and uh you know how all of these things affect the body so do you mind sharing a little bit about some of your other professional interests other than cannabis? What are some other plants that you're particularly fascinated with? Or it doesn't even necessarily have to be about plants, but just um, other things scientifically that you're passionate about that kind of get outside of the realm of cannabis. 
Oh, <laughs> so much. <laughs> so yeah, no, I love plants in general, be it medicinal or not. Um, I actually visited New Mexico uh, last weekend and uh, I was just uh, yeah enjoying myself a lot with a book about uh, Indian, so indigenous uh, Native American uh, medicine. Yes, uh, yeah. I brought some herbs because I wanted to try them. Um, I, I changed uh, also for, for eating. I'm very interested in food, but I changed the continents eh, from uh, living in the Netherlands to living in Colorado. Oh, what is this tree uh, standing in the <laughs> right. garden? And uh, now I made a jam of it. Uh, apparently, uh, the Native Americans did that as well, ate that, those berries as, as is. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm very interested in, in plants and the world around me, but also in, um, uh, except for, 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 for pharmacology, in the neuroscience and also in other scientific disciplines. So um, in New Mexico um, last Sunday, I actually uh, visited um, the Nuclear Science and History Museum, which I also mm. find fascinating. Yeah, it yeah. was really nice. Uh, not only um, uh, did they, uh, of course, tell about the Manhattan Project of the development of the nuclear uh, bombs, um, but also they had a section devoted to nuclear medicine, uh, huh. which is very interesting. Um, for, for various reasons. Um, in the Netherlands, I, uh, I lived close to uh, the first uh, proton center that was built. Uh, oh, really? And wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For, for in, a, in a hospital for patients. Yeah. So uh, uh, medicine, um, uh, biology, uh, physics, mathematics, of course, the, the, the ultimate uh, uh, science is all very, very fascinating to me. Yeah. And and you just brought up something I meant to ask early, early on, and I forgot. Can you describe a little bit of what that transition was like moving from the ne the Netherlands to Colorado? Um, and, and you can go in different directions about it, but particularly just uh, the, the culture around cannabis and cannabis research and all of that is kind of what I mainly want to focus on. What was that like for you? Oh, um, yeah, that's, that's good because you're uh, uh, addressing the culture of, of cannabis and cannabis research. Um, uh, it, it's very contrasting, actually, in some ways. Uh, uh, it's it's very different working um, in the Netherlands, where it's easier to get this research done than in the United States. But what is uh, what I mean by contrasting is that um, uh, the Netherlands have a very uh, strange, um, narrow mindset. Um, about uh, bringing um, cannabis as a product to the market. Um, Actually, there was a lot of political corruption um, around um, um, cannabis advice uh, to the government, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. And here in uh, the United States, on a federal level, of course, it's not regulated well at all. But on a state level, it is so much further ahead and there's so much more development uh, than uh, in, in the Netherlands. So that is a very big difference. Um, of course, I, I came from the Netherlands to the United States and I'm dealing here with uh, a very different culture, a particular yeah. industry. And sometimes I don't even know if particular behaviors are due to me dealing a lot with a millennial generation that might also be different from uh, what I am used to. Uh, for example, uh, the digital communication, I find sometimes um, uh, yeah, very uh, rude even. Uh, mm, yeah, <laughs> people wanting yeah. things from you without uh, first introducing themselves, like things like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. 
but yeah. um yeah no but it's it's a really interesting uh transition um i'm enjoying it a lot otherwise i would not be here anymore of course um but uh, yeah there 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 are a, a lot of similarities in this industry as well compared to many other industries people stay people um uh, people have their motivations and that is not uh, hey, even though people are very proud of the industry and want to show how different it is, I think there are a lot of uh, things that are very common for being human, um, mm. which is not different for this industry. And also, I uh, might be really strict and harsh, um, but we're living in 2020 right now, and people do not always act as if, as if it is 2020. <laughs> they, they act as if they need to reinvent the wheel. That is not needed. There are lots of be best practices also from other industries. You can apply those. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. That's, that's something I've noticed a lot in the industry is a lot of recreating the wheel. And I think some of that is because... Um, quite a bit of the the folks that have um, gotten into the cannabis industry don't necessarily come fr with uh, backgrounds in like um, uh, dietary supplement manufacturing or pharmaceutical manufacturing or you know any of these sort of things and so sometimes they just don't know you know that um, a lot of these challenges have already been overcome or in my line of work one of the things I do a lot is consult um, analytical labs and production labs on quality management so how do you control variables? How do you, um, how are you monitoring, you know, things? And um, GMP is like this buzzword in the industry, but like trying to actually provide context that, you know, in, you know, dietary supplement manufacturers that are doing things the proper way, you know, are already implementing these systems and pharmaceutical companies have no choice and, um, and being able to provide those examples and, um, Kind of help people understand that there, yeah, these best practices already exist, um, and they can be improved upon. Um, but that you don't have to waste years figuring this out. Um, you can kind of get shortcut and um, and then focus on what is really most relevant to what you're trying to do. Um, but um, yeah, I I'm sure that that cultural difference was fascinating. I remember when I talked to um, Justin Fischetic about his uh, research at Leiden University and everything, and he was commenting on um one thing that was interesting to him is that uh just procuring cannabis was really easy for his research like he said literally people would just bring trash bags <laughs> of cannabis and it wasn't uh very regulated like there wasn't um a lot of traceability so it was very easy to just casually procure things whereas you know once he came back here and was doing research in california it became much more um difficult to procure the materials that he wanted um, because he had to go through all of these these different channels which on one side is a really good thing but it just uh, slowed down sort of his ability to um, move along at the at the rate that he was kind of used to when he was in the Netherlands um, and something I didn't realize that he pointed out to me is that um, like the the coffee shops in the Netherlands and that sort of thing that that's not really um, necessarily necessarily like regulated or condoned it's just sort of like allowed to exist it's it's incredible like i think if you are uh, have a normal healthy mind you're not gonna understand what the netherlands is doing there um <laughs> yeah yeah so i will explain it from my perspective you have coffee shops which are if you say coffee shop in holland it's always related to cannabis uh, otherwise it's not called coffee shop 
So the literal word. It's a kind of a, it's a place where you can buy and use your cannabis. That's allowed. Yeah. yeah. But uh, growing cannabis is not allowed. Oh, interesting. So okay. how do these people get their cannabis? Well, uh, let's say all the amateur criminals, let's say, because I don't want to say that these people are criminals, but according to the law, they are. Right. Uh, the more amateur growers um, are easily traceable by the police. They do stupid things like uh, growing cannabis on, on their ceiling. Uh, and, uh, or ceiling, sorry, what do you mean? Attic, attic. On their attic, and then it snows, and then uh, there's only one house in the neighborhood without snow on the roof. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, that's how these people get caught. Um, and, and, and then, so who are left are the big, big criminals that really do nasty things, that are represented in politics, that do not wow. mind to um, get people out of the way. So uh, that's a problem. And these are the people, if people with such mindsets make the product that people consume that are not tested for anything, you just don't know what you're using. and. Yeah. I think that's dangerous uh, and it just does not make sense. Why do you have a place where it's allowed to sell the product, but you do not allow as a country to grow it uh, legally mm -hmm. for those coffee shops? That's a, a big problem. Uh, so Justin had a, has a good point there. Um, we did our PhD in Leiden, the same place, a different lab at the same time, by the way. Um, oh, wow. It's really nice. Um, yeah. Wow, that is that is super fascinating. Very interesting. Um, yeah, I I you know I remember when um, like the the cannabis cups used to take place in the Netherlands, um, and I never really looked into what the um, regulatory environment really was. Just sort of assumed like, oh, that's something they allow. That is a really fascinating point. That there's no. There's no regulatory structure for cultivating or for managing quality. Um, and as an aside, what would you ask for if you wanted to find a genuine place to consume coffee in the in the Netherlands? Ah, um, probably you would just go uh, uh, to uh, uh, a cafe or so. <laughs> mm, okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, or a <laughs> coffee house or something like that. Gotcha. Okay, cool. Um, so we've been going for almost an hour and 40 minutes now. I so greatly appreciate you being willing to talk to me for this long. And I, I want to give you just a couple kind of um, simple questions here to start to wrap things up. If you were to summarize, um, let's say, the three most common misconceptions about cannabis that you encounter most frequently, uh, what would those be? Um, I think indeed uh, what we touched on earlier um, that uh, uh, cannabis can uh, cure XYZ. Mm -hmm. um, cannabis um, has not been proven to necessarily cure or treat particular symptoms. You need yeah. to be very nuanced uh, which ones those are. Um, sometimes it might help for a person, sometimes not for another, um, but it's more about the statement that this does work rather than the nuance that it might work or there's no proof, but you can try or all these things. Uh, so that's one. Uh, the other thing that you also said that cannabis is safe. 
Yeah. Uh, THC is safe. Yeah, but maybe not for the people who are sensitive to it. CBD is safe. Yes, but only if you know what you're buying. Yeah. Um, and then not when you're using particular medication you can interact with. So every everything, uh, it's it's not different from anything else in life. I'm not saying that cannabis is, oh, we need to be really be careful, <laughs> you know, but you need to know what you're doing. Even if you drink uh, eight liters of water in 10 minutes, it's, it's right. deadly. So uh, everything in balance. Um, so that, and then, yeah, um, yeah, misconception. What I notice is that uh, patients sometimes are a bit stuck because they go to a butt tender and they cannot answer medical questions. And yeah. they go to a doctor and doctors say, well, I don't know. Yeah, everyone says talk to your doctor, but then right. if your doctor doesn't want to talk about it, it's really hard. And uh, that is actually one of the problems. Um, like I sometimes think a misconception with the doctors because they think it comes, it's, it's a drug. I've seen these all uh, U.S. Uh, advertisements against uh, cannabis. <laughs> yeah. That's that's pretty pretty uh, rough, and um, I think that these doctors do not need to be uh, afraid. But I'm happy that they're aware that they don't know. But therefore, I'm trying now um, uh, to get uh, the cannabis tool into hospitals, into clinics with doctors to really give them the confidence that um, if you know the literature. Um, then you can at least answer some of the questions. You can confront your uh, patients without saying, well, I do not want to talk about it. Let's talk about something different. Yeah, that's that's really, really exciting to me. I hope that works out because um, one of the doctors I spoke to, um, he talked specifically about this issue of what happens when someone, a patient goes to their doctor to talk about it. Like, why do the doctors you know, have that kind of response? And he pointed out that, you know, when a physician doesn't understand something, then they take a precautionary approach and they say, I don't know enough about that, so I just can't go there. And that's not necessarily a reflection of the physician's um, resistance to study it or, you know, learn about it, you know, and that sort of thing, but they're trying to um, just have that precautionary approach and not possibly support a treatment that, um, might possibly make things worse or might be ineffective or whatever. So having access to some tool like Canify where in the moment a patient can say, you know, to their doctor that I'm, you know, we've been dealing with these different conditions and I'm considering cannabis, you know, can we start to explore that and to have the physician have a tool at their fingertips to say, well, let's look and try to quickly identify what scientific literature is available and then we can start to, you know, explore that and um, try to make sense of it. That's that's really exciting. I'm glad you're you're pushing for that, and I hope that it's accepted. I hope that because um, especially that'll help make the Canify tool better as well. If clinicians can start using it and can start to identify um, other ways that the Canify tool could evolve to better, you know, suit that purpose, um, that's super exciting and could really bridge this gap um, that we currently have of you know, so many physicians, nurses, and everything that just don't have that education. Um, so I'm, I'm very excited about that. Um, and the final question I have for you is a very, very broad one, but just um, looking at cannabis research as a whole, and not, not specifically the cannabis research you're doing, 
what are you excited about and what do you hope to see from the future of cannabis research as it develops? Uh, well, one area that has not been uh, touched like uh, a whole lot um, is psychiatric disorders. Uh, uh, yes. Yeah, I mean, uh, cannabis receptors, uh, cannabinoid receptors are uh, the most uh, abundant of its type in the brain. And um, yeah, therefore also able to uh, regulate many brain systems. And um, it's hard to uh, regulate the cannabinoid system in the body because there are not a lot of receptor subtypes. Like uh, uh, you cannot uh, turn this knob and that one. No, if you, uh, yeah, if you, you target them, you target, boom, uh, one time all of them. Uh, but still, I think there um, is a lot we can learn about psychiatric disorders and uh, cannabinoids. And we should not be uh, afraid of studying that. Uh, because that, that's what people also think, like, oh, this it's a scary area, but it's very important that that happens. And then something else that I'm very interested in uh, personally as well is, um, let's say, targeting um, one particular target in various different ways. So mm. uh, it is almost like it's like the entourage effect almost uh, combining various um, compounds um, together that have uh, the same target, get there by different ways, sub-therapeutic levels, so you hopefully will not get too many side effects, uh, but see how you can um, help uh, people treat symptoms that way. Yeah, yeah, that's fascinating, and it opens up this... Uh, it, it provides so many different directions you can go, uh, which is really exciting when you start to look at different agents that are all targeting the same thing in different ways, um, it opens this door to all sorts of different formulations to explore and, uh, and the pathways that are responsible for these things. Because sometimes you know, we're learning that there's crosstalk between different um, like receptor signaling systems and, and different pathways uh, that aren't always so obvious. And one of these is like the uh, crosstalk between apoptosis and autophagy, you know, signaling systems that, you know, how are those two processes uh, you know, linked? How do they influence each other? That's something I've been kind of studying a lot about lately that I find really fascinating. But that kind of example extends to all sorts of different things in the body. Um, yeah. And I'm really interested, uh, the, the psychiatric component, you know, we know there's this interplay between serotonergic systems and um, cannabinoid receptor signaling systems. You find these, you know, groupings of CB1 receptors and serotonin receptors. And I think there's research lately even shows that dopamine does this too. Um, yeah. But that you've got this intimate interplay. Um, so obviously um, the endocannabinoid system is involved in some form or fashion um, with these issues. Um, but I, th I think the, the hesitancy has always been that THC has been labeled as a, um, uh, what do you call it, a psychomimetic. Um, so there's always this concern that by getting into that research of studying THC and psychiatric disorders that you'll uh, make things worse. Yeah, that's very unfortunate. <clears throat> I mean, uh, had, uh, most uh, drugs are studied first in healthy volunteers, but healthy volunteers are different from patients. That, yeah. that, that's why they're healthy and patients are sick. <laughs> and, and you want to study uh, sometimes things in patients because are, it is very different. And um, uh, same with uh, uh, if you give um, 
uh, cannabis to to a schizophrenic patient versus a healthy mm. patient, uh, someone with PTSD versus a healthy patient will 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 yeah enter very differently. And uh, maybe it's nice because you you mentioned uh, the serotonin system, which is uh, uh, probably uh, the way CBD does its uh, anti-anxiety effects yeah. uh, on, on THC-induced anxiety. Uh, another nice example is the dopamine system, uh, giving the psychotic-like uh, effects of THC, which is different from high. Uh, the research institute um, where I uh, used to work did an experiment with giving THC to people and giving uh, a medicine to people called haloperidol. And mm. uh, that's a dopamine blocker. And um, when you measure for psychotic uh, symptoms with THC alone, and then you add that dopamine blocker, you see that people will have a decrease of the psychotic symptoms, but not of high. So it does not work via the dopamine system. Wow. Yeah, that's fascinating. So much to to figure out. I mean, something that uh, the ecologist in me always gets excited about these examples of interconnected systems um, and thinking about the body itself as, you know, this complex ecological system. Um, that's, yeah, really, really exciting to me. I'm really interested to see how, how all that type of research develops as well. Yeah, I was mentioning that because you were literally mentioning serotonin system and dopamine system. So I thought, oh, yeah, maybe this is a, <laughs> a nice example Yeah, of how everything is, is, is connected. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, um, thank you so, so, so much for being willing to um, do the podcast today. We've gone for almost two hours which is great. I'm glad you, you had the time. And in the future, you know, as some of your projects develop and everything, if you want to um, come on the podcast again and talk about anything specific, I know with this interview, always with my first interview with anyone, it's very broad. We go in a lot of different directions, um, but I'm always happy to um, explore any specific um, concepts that you might want to go into later um, if you're interested. So, Oh, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, keep me in the loop. And then uh, right now, I'll kind of hand the uh, platform over to you. Um, let people know um, how to find Canify and follow your work. Anything else that you um, want to share with our listeners before we sign off? Oh, sure. Uh, so if people want to try out Canify or are interested in using Canify uh, for their uh, clinical practice, um, you can find it online on www.canify.us and Canify is spelled C-A-N-N-I-F-Y. Um, uh, furthermore, uh, I also have a consulting partnership um, for um, scientific consultants, um, which is together with my partner, Dr. Michael Tegan, um, and it's called Verdian Science. Um, you can find us on verdiant.com and yeah if people have any questions after this podcast they can just contact me via the Canify website the verdiant website uh, just uh, give a little introduction about uh, <laughs> uh, who you are and <laughs> yeah that would be really nice oh that's great I'm, I'm so glad oh, you you invite that feedback yeah that's awesome well for uh for those of you that have been listening or are watching, uh, however you're um, uh, participating in our conversation here, thanks so much for tuning in. If you want to learn more about Curious About Cannabis, you can always go to cacpodcast.com and you'll find all of the episodes and information about our contributors and everything like that there. 
Uh, we're also on social media, on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just search for Curious About Cannabis and you'll find us, as well as uh, we also have our YouTube channel. So thanks so much for your support, as always, and I'll catch you next time. If you want to learn more about cannabis, you can check out the Curious About Cannabis book, available now on Amazon.com and other online book retailers. The Curious About Cannabis podcast is presented by Natural Learning Enterprises, a science education company dedicated to the enhancement of public scientific literacy through education about the natural world. Curious About Cannabis is just one of several learning initiatives produced by Natural Learning Enterprises. To learn more, go to www.naturallearningenterprises.com or connect with NLE on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter.